Chapter 30 of Zefloia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anthony Gerges from the Tide Pod Podcast. Zefloia by Charlotte Dacker. Chapter 30. Darkness and gloomy solitude reigned around, when the eyes of Victoria again opened to the sense of life and perception. She found herself reclining on the bare earth. The thunder rolled around over her head, and flashes of vivid flame now and then displayed the terrific sublimity of surrounding objects. Immense mountains piled upon one another appeared to encompass her, and to include within their inaccessible bosoms the whole of the universe. Beyond the towering walls, capped only by the misty clouds, the imagination, suddenly thrown back and staggered at its own conceptions, could not presume to penetrate. Mighty rocks and dizzying precipices at their base, in which the water, falling from an immeasurable height, frantically battled gloomy caverns, which seemed the entrance to pandemonium. Alpine cliffs, and in their fierce projection, menaced ruin to the wretched beneath. Such was the scene that, as the blue lightning flashed in terrible and stupendous confusion, struck upon her view. Amidst these awful horrors, with folded arms and majestic air, stationed nearly opposite to her stood the towering Zofloia. To him the scene appeared congenial, and Victoria acknowledged to herself that never before had she beheld him in his proper sphere. Common objects seemed to shrink in his presence, the earth to tremble at the firmness of his step. Now alone his native grandeur shone in its full glory, not eclipsed by, but adding to, the terrible magnificence of the scene. On him the eyes of Victoria involuntarily fixed, dignity and ineffable grace were diffused over his whole figure. For the first time she felt towards him an emotion of tenderness, blended with her admiration and strange inconsistency, amidst the gloomy terrors that pressed upon her heart. Amidst the sensible misery that oppressed her, she experienced something like pride in reflecting that a being so wonderful, so superior and so beautiful, should thus appear to be interested in her fate. As if he penetrated her thoughts, the Moor approached with a sweet though awful smile and extended his hand for her to rise. Trembling as much from consciousness at the confused sentiments she felt, arising in her bosom as from alarm, Occasioned by external circumstances, she took his proffered hand. "'Tell me, Zofloia,' she said in a tremulous accent, "'tell me, where we now are, and how we came hither. Know you not, beautiful Victoria, that we are among the Alps, the boundaries of your native kingdom? How we came hither is surely not material for you to know, but we are safe.' "'But I have no remembrance of our journey.' If I recollect all right, it was evening when we last parted. It appears evening still, though late. In what time, then? It appears that it is late in the evening. It was, as you justly observe, evening when we parted. This then infers the probability that a night and a day have nearly elapsed. But how? Have my faculties been so long suspended? cried Victoria with uneasiness. And it is to you alone that I am now indebted for this restoration? O oh, Zofloia, I perceive too clearly how much, how completely I am in your power. 
She sighed deeply as she uttered these words, and the conviction of her subjection pressed heavily upon her mind. Her self-confidence vanished, and uneasy sensations filled her bosom. Zofloya smiled and tenderly took her hand. Why these reflections, Victoria, and why these inferences? Are you not now secure from the shame and horror that awaited you? No common means could have extricated you in such exigence. The case pressed and required prompt exertion. Why then regret if superior power was employed to save and to deliver you? Zofloya paused. A loud peal of thunder rattled madly above them and reverberated in stern and hollow sounds among the echoing rocks. The pointed lightning fearfully gleamed in long and tremulous flashes. Victoria's firm bosom felt appalled. For never before had she witnessed the terrible phenomena of nature in storm among the Alps. She drew closer to the proud and shrinking figure of the moor. He passed his arms around her waist and gently pressed her to his breast. Victoria felt reassured. She seemed to herself as an isolated being, possessing no earthly friend or protector, but him on whose bosom she now tremblingly reposed. Never till this moment had she been so near the person of the moor. Such powerful fascination dwelt around him that she felt incapable of withdrawing from his arms. Yet ashamed, for Victoria was still proud, and blushing at her feelings, when she remembered that Zofloya, however he appeared, was but a menial slave, and as such alone had originally become known to her. She sought, but sought vainly to repress them, for no sooner enveloped in the lightning's flashes he seemed when it gleamed around him without touching his person, did she behold that beautiful and majestic visage, that towering and graceful form, then all thought of his inferiority vanished, and the ravished sense spurning at the calamitous idea confessed him a being of superior order. While thus they remained in the midst of these terrible and sublime solitudes, as there was a solemn pause in the fury of the storm, which exhausted by its own violence seemed suspended only to collect force for renovated explosion, the sound of human voices broke on their ears. Lights gleamed suddenly from the rocky heights, which appearing rapidly to move, like flaming meteors athwart a gloomy sky, were discovered at length to be torches, carried by the hands of men. As they continued to approach, their dress, their arms, and fierce demeanor revealed them for condottieri or banditi. Zofloya, inclining his body, said in a low voice to Victoria, Be not alarmed, we shall be presently surrounded by these bands, hordes of whom infest these mountains, particularly Mount Sinus, where we now are. But regret not the circumstance, no immediate ill will arise. On the contrary, we may, if we will, procure shelter and accommodation. Victoria made no reply, for by this time a ring began to be formed around them of armed men, the red flame of whose torches betrayed forms and features of such desperate and horrid cast that scarcely bore they the semblance of human beings. One stepping from among them brandished his dagger and thus spoke, What do ye hear in the midst of this storm? Whence came ye? Whither are ye going? And what riches do ye carry that ye will resign at once without bloodshed? Whence we come, and whither we design to go, is now immaterial, answered Zofloya. The riches we possess are nor worthy your notice, but we desire to be led to your chief. There was a long pause among the band. Zofloya resumed. You behold that we are unarmed. You have nothing therefore to fear in permitting us to see your chief. 
We are neither spies nor enemies with bad intent. So saying with an authoritative air, he waved his hand as if to say, Lead on without further question. Thus at least the action appeared to be understood. Respectfully the ring opened on either side, and him who had first spoken, inclining his head with a submissive air to the moor, motioned to lead the way. With one arm round the waist of Victoria, and holding a torch that had been tendered to him in the other hand, Zafloy walked stately in the midst of the band, his plumed head towering above all, as the lofty poplar of the forest proudly towers above surrounding shrubs. Astonishing being that he is, thought Victoria, even these ferocious bandits are tamed into submission by the magic power of that fascinating voice. They ascended the side of the mountain, then, by narrow and dangerous defiles, gradually declined. Now they touched on the brink of a precipice, now glided with the ease of habit along the slippery ridges of stupendous rocks. At length a deep hollow presented itself. They descended its almost perpendicular sides and reached the rocky valley below. A rude protruding mass of rock seemed to sustain itself in mid-air, as it were, became by the winding of the path presently visible. It extended nearly to the opposite side of the mountain, forming thereby a kind of huge irregular arch. Entering beneath it, a narrow aperture presented itself, through which one by one of the band began to pass. Victoria beheld herself in her turn at the darksome mouth of this cavern, to which the overhanging brow of the rock formed a natural and tremendous portico, and again her spirits failed and her heart began to sink. Compelled to proceed, however, for the bandit from behind pressed onwards, she consoled herself with the reflection that Zofloya was nigh and resumed her courage. By degrees the opening became more spacious, but turning and winding in an endless labyrinth, while other openings perpetually crossed their path, sometimes divided from each other by an arc, whose heavy summit was indivisible from the roof of the cavern, sometimes by rude pillars of stone forming an irregular colonnade, at length they found themselves in an extensive space, whose sliming walls, as the red glare of the torches passed along, reflected the various and blended colors of the rainbow. Victoria looked around. The gloomy cave reminded her of that in which the unfortunate Lilla had been pitilessly immured, and involuntarily she trembled. One of the banditti, approaching a certain part of the cavern with the butt-end of his trombone, knocked loud and distinctly three successive times against it. After a pause of about a minute, the knocks were repeated on the inside. He then drew from his girdle a small instrument, in shape resembling a horn, and applying it to his mouth, he blew a shrill, peculiar sound. Immediately that part, which bore no remarkable appearance, but seemed only a plain, indissoluble portion of the rocky wall, flew suddenly open in form of a rude door, as if actuated by a secret spring, and discovered seated round a blazing fire with wine and various provisions spread in rude confusion before them a crowd of bandit in savage attire resembling those who now rapidly poured in as if inspired by an anxious desire to partake of the good cheer they beheld in the midst of this horde the bandit ranged respectfully on either side elevated by a rude bench of stone from the rest who merely squatted on the floor appeared a graceful figure distinguished by his high and single-plumed helmet and by the fierce eccentric costume of his dress. He looked and was the chief of the condottieri, elected unanimously as their leader on the death of a famed chief who had preceded him. His face was concealed by a mask which circumstance excited the surprise of Victoria. Beside him sat, fancifully but splendidly attired, 
a female whose countenance, though neither remarkable for extreme youth or beauty, struck instantly peculiar emotion to her breast, in the confused but uneasy recollection of having somewhere before beheld it. In this idea she was confirmed by the look with which her slight glance was returned. It bespoke instant recognition, and with it fury and unfaded hate. Zofloya boldly advanced, leading his companion by the hand. The chief instinctively rose with a dignified and commanding air. As the trangers drew nigh their chief, the tenacious and suspicious bandit sprang on their feet to a man and draw, as with one accord, the shining stiletto from their belts to guard against the bare possibility of treachery or evil intent. Zofloya, observing this movement, haughtily smiled and waved his hand as if to imply that their suspicions were erroneous. The chief, by a turn of the head, commanded them to put up their weapons, and Zofloya thus addressed him. Signor, we are strangers, but would willingly become friends. We fly from danger and persecution, and request for a while the safety of your protection. Victoria felt surprised to hear the Moor speak thus, but surprised that his conduct had ceased to be a new sensation. She remained silent, therefore, and the chief thus replied, It is enough. We injure not the defenseless, nor those who throw themselves upon our mercy. Honor is in our law, and the lives of those who would place themselves under our protection are sacred. I pray you then be seated and partake, without compliment of our supper. Friends, be seated all and let your daggers remain sheathed. In a moment, everyone resumed his seat. Drink, said the masked chief, and offered Zofloya a flask of wine, who receiving it presented it immediately to Victoria. This movement appeared to draw towards her the regards of the chief. For a moment they were fixed steadfastly upon her. He became agitated and laid his hand upon the hilt of the stiletto in his belt, then half rose from his seat and again reseated himself. Victoria trembled. She knew not why. The company seemed surprised. Zafloya alone remained collected and unmoved. He pressed Victoria to eat with respectful entreaty. By degrees the chief resumed his composure. He looked no longer towards Victoria with pointed regard, and her uneasiness abating, she accepted the attentions of Zofloya. Reserve wore off, cheerfulness, and at length conviviality began to prevail. The band drank success to each other, and health to their brave commander. They joked, they laughed, they sang. The female joined in their merriment with indecorous glee, but the chief, though no longer disturbed, remained still silent and absorbed. At length, Either displeased at their mirth, or rousing himself by an effort, he said, Our brave comrades are all here. All, replied several voices at once. They go forth no more tonight. Let everyone retire to repose, save those whose turn it is to guard. For you, senor, looking towards Zofloya, you must fare as we do. Victoria, uh, the senor, I mean. She is neither your wife nor mistress, I presume. We'll find matting to repose on in a separate nook of our cavern. The words of the masked chief electrified Victoria. Surprise possessed her soul, for it was evident she was known to him. She looked towards the moor, but in a strong marked countenance saw no unusual expression. The senora is not my wife, he replied, addressing the chief. Neither is she my mistress. She will be mine, however, for we are linked by indissoluble bands. What? I suppose the bands of love, cried the female with a loud laugh, as she sat beside the chief and now resembled a bacante. 
Again, the chief became visibly agitated. Yours, he muttered, but suddenly checking himself, added, The accommodations here are scanty. You must arrange for the best, therefore. Then haughtily inclining his head, he retired beneath an arch to the extremity of the cavern, which appeared to lead into an interior recess. The female, who seemed either his wife or a companion, retired likewise. With skins and matting, the moors of Floya composed for Victoria a tolerable bed. He spread it in a rugged nook, remote from the band, and leading her towards it was retiring. When Victoria's proud but now almost subjugated heart touched with the respectful attentions of the only companion her vices and her crimes had left her, extended to him with softened looks her hand. He took it with tenderness, yet delicate reserved, and raised it to his lips. His manner but increased to ardor the feelings of Victoria. The dying embers at the further side of the cavern cast round a dusky light. The form, the features, and above all, the luminous eyes of Zafloya appeared more than human. They shone with a brilliant fire. Resistless fascination dwelt about him. Victoria, as he held her hand to his lips, gazed upon him with admiration and gratitude, and her high-wrought emotion vented itself in a flood of tears. Yes, the proud, the inhuman Victoria, conquered and affected by the shoe of kindness, wept from feeling, from an emotion of the heart. But who could withstand the enchanting influence of Zafloya? Sweet and gentle Victoria, he cried, in a voice that seemed the music of the spheres. Compose yourself and retire to rest. Why should my trifling attentions call forth this excessive feeling? Believe me, I feel that you will yet repay me all. Repay these, Afloya. I am thine, ever. I know thou art, in a degree, lovely Victoria, but not sufficiently so. Ah, tell me, Zafloya, can I be more so? Teach me, for I feel... I think that it is impossible. The gratitude of my heart, the sentiments of my soul are thine. An indefinable yet bewitching smile passed over the features of Zafloya. Ah, Victoria, he softly said, the time is not yet come. I will not claim thee yet, but when I do, then thou wilt be holy and completely mine, wilt thou not? Ah, Zafloya, Zafloya. Thou wilt, thou shalt, fair Victoria. I have sworn it, by myself have sworn it. But now, now I leave thee to repose. Delay will, but increase the value of my prize. O oh, inscrutable moor, thy language is ever indefinable. Time will explain it, fairest Victoria. Good night. The moor withdrew, and Victoria sunk oppressed upon her couch a couch harder far than any on which hitherto she had reposed. Yet the poor departed Lilla, whispered Conscience, which in the gloomy hour of adversity ever wakes. The poor Lilla, she had not even such as this. Yet for the hardness of the couch, for the pang of Conscience, what repaid? Strange to say, the conviction of Zafloya's proximity, which now shed enchantment around and ravished her deluded mind. She fell at length into a slumber, from which she did not awake till the noise of the bandit, moving to and fro in the cavern, caused her to start and gaze eagerly round for Zafloya, the only being on whom she now considered herself to possess the smallest claim. He observed her eager looks, and hastening towards her, said, I have obtained permission of the chief, sweet Victoria, 
that you shall quit the cavern and enjoy the keen air of the mountains. He relies upon the word of Zafloya that we turn to this spot, which has afforded us shelter in an hour of necessity, and that whenever we quit it, we shall consent to being escorted by some of his troop to the other side of the mountain or some miles forward in whatever direction we may desire to go. This to avoid possibility of evil design on our parts, and to satisfy his mind with respect to us. Meantime, he permits us to go unaccompanied. Has he yet unmasked? whispered Victoria. And can I see him? He has not. Nor does he ever, I understand, in the presence of strangers. Come, I have a basket of provisions on my arm. Let us quit for a few hours this subterraneous abode. I last night noted the labyrinthian windings of the path, leading to and from the mountain. We shall need no guide. Victoria gave her hand to the moor, secretly surprised he should have been able so readily to mark the devious way. But nothing was impossible for Zafloya. His noble presence seemed to diffuse around respect and admiration. Submissively, the fierce bandit fell back as he passed when, as they reached the rugged ascent leading to the mouth of the cavern, and were on the point of issuing thence, the graceful chief, still masked, appeared before them, with his female companion leaning on his arm. For a moment he stopped with a proud, uneasy air, when seeming to remark the respect manifested by the more towards Victoria, he slightly bowed and retreated a few steps, leaving room for them to pass beneath the frowning portico that concealed and overhung the aperture of the cavern. His companion, however, fixed her eyes upon Victoria with a look at once of hate and malicious scorn. Victoria felt agitated, and again the features of this woman impressed forcibly her mind. Well, she remembered that bold and frenzied countenance, though appearing far less beautiful than when she saw it first, being now from irregular living or some other cause bloated and coarse, but yet the never-fading expression of features so familiar to her fancy remained, though the power of memory was vain to identify them. As they emerged from subterranean gloom to the light of day, Victoria expressed to the more the sensations which oppressed her. I know not whence it is, she said, but the stately and solemn deportment of that chief affects me strangely. His regards not of an approving kind are pointed particularly at me. The sight of the female, too, agitates and discomforts me. Sure I am, Zafloya, that I have somewhere beheld that face. It is far from improbable, observed Zafloya. But why should she regard me, pursued Victoria, with looks so hostile and malignant? Why should the chief direct his looks towards me? Time will explain it all, laconically, though with emphasis, observed Zafloya again. But you are not surprised, Zafloya. These incidents draw no remark from you. I am never surprised. But tell me at least thy thoughts, I entreat thee. My thoughts, said the moor with a serious air, and looking gloomily upon Victoria. Yes, thou takest me, thinks Zafloy, no part in the common occurrences of life. What are thy thoughts? Destruction, he returned in a terrible voice. Victoria involuntarily shuddered. True, he pursued. I like no part in the common occurrences of life. Common occurrences do not interest me. The dreadful, the terrific, the surprising alone of nature hath power to call me forth. Nor even in them do I mix unless invited or allured. O Zofloya, cried Victoria, wretched and friendless as I am, yet ever to lament that thy converse to me is unintelligible. 
It will not always be so, Victoria, but seat thyself here beside me, and let us discourse on other subjects. Victoria obeyed, for it was impossible for her to resist the smallest proposition of the moor. He placed himself near her and entreated her to partake of the provisions he had brought, but she felt an impression at her heart and could not eat. Perceiving her uneasiness, he passed his arm round her waist and said, Fair Victoria, why this discontent? Wherefore this gloom? Canst thou not place thy entire confidence in me? Or canst thou not be happy with Zafloia? Say at once, for thou knowest, lovely creature, that we are affianced. Victoria started involuntarily. Zafloia, what mean you? A truce, fair Victoria, to folly. Am I not thy equal? I, thy superior? Proud girl, to suppose that the Moors of Floya is a slave in mind. Victoria repented her ill-timed check. She felt herself in the power of the Moor, while his manner at once proud and imperious carried with it an irresistible charm, a somewhat that penetrated her heart, and took from her the wish as well as the power to offer further reproof. Victoria, resumed the Moor, Remember that I have been thy willing instrument, and that literally I have performed to thee the promises I made. The heart of Victoria did not assent. She felt that his promises had been fallacious, or indefinitely performed. But she forbore remark, and he proceeded as though he understood her thoughts. Am I to blame if circumstances operated to make thy services unpropitious? Have I not sacrificed all future prospects to save thee from disgrace, and accompany thee in thy flight? Thou canst not be displeased, Victoria. Am I to blame for the unkindness of fortune? The speciousness and futility of his arguments were sufficiently evident to Victoria, yet her soul involuntarily became softened. Graceful beauty shone conspicuous in the form of the moor, and a fascinating sweetness dwelt on his features. His resplendent yet tender-beaming eyes sent their powerful softness through her bosom, and her heart dissolved in willing-pleasing delusion, delighting to cherish while it felt its weakness. A triumphant smile now lighted up the expressive countenance of the moor. He took her hand and pressed it to his lips with haughty tenderness. "'Yes, too sure I feel,' cried Victoria, unable to contend with the emotions of her heart that for thee, Zafloia, I could at this moment resign the world, nay, life itself. Yet my soul sickens at the prospect before me. Say, how long must we reside amid the savage condottieri? Yet while, lovely Victoria, and when thou quittest these solitudes, he pursued, while his eyes sparkled with more than mortal fire, then art thou mine for ever. Victoria ventured to look upon him, but did not speak. Say, wilt thou not be mine? resumed Zafloia. Yet why do I ask? Since there is no appeal for thee, he added with a terrible smile, thou in reality being mine already. As he concluded, he grasped the hand which she held in his with violence. A faint exclamation of pain escaped the lips of Victoria, but looking at his countenance, illumined as it was with wild and singular expression, she attributed his violence to uncontrollable ardor, and only smiled. The moor seized her in his arms, then pushing her from him, surveyed her from head to foot. Yes, yes, thou wilt be mine, he exclaimed, to all eternity.
End of chapter 30. Recording by Anthony Gerges from the Tide Pod Podcast.